Good morning. How are you all today? Good. My name is Clark Dixon. I am a pastoral intern here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. I first would like to thank Bert for allowing me to come up here and preach your word. I'm also really thankful that I am the pastoral intern that had the honor to open the bathrooms for Crawford Avenue. I am so excited. Like, I can look uh, at my congregation, if God grants me one, in the future and say, you know what, that Crawford Avenue, I opened those bathrooms. I'm glad I could do that. All right, the title of this sermon today is The Reassuring Love of God. And our text is 1 John 4, 7 through 12. If you're using one of the black Bibles that's underneath the chairs, that's on 1023. Now, many today, as Christians, have doubts. I know often I doubt if I'm really sincere in my faith. I doubt sometimes in God's love for me. And sometimes when I'm witnessing or communicating with my uh, friends, families, or somebody I don't know of, and they, they tell me that they're a Christian, but then I, I look at their life, I sometimes doubt their faith. And if you can uh, relate to any of those, this message is just for you. Because in the book of 1 John, that's what John was talking about. To give you a little bit of a background of this book, it's first about John replying and answering what these false teachers that were harassing the church. These false teachers had a couple of different things that they were pushing from the outside in. They had a different view of what Christ was and who he was and what he did on the cross. They basically believed that Jesus was not God. Furthermore, they also uh, believed that one could be sinless. And these um, teachings was causing great divisions in the local church. And the apostle John was writing to first correct and refute those teachings. And secondly, to give encouragement and hope and reassure those Christians that they are in Christ. And there is three main ways that um, John does this. He looks at doctrine. He looks at the ethics, and he looks at relationship. These are all three different tests that how you can know you are a Christian. And today, we are going to focus in at number three, relationship. And so the whole arch, big arching idea of this passage is that because of a relationship in Christ, we are to love others, and that is to give us assurance of faith. So we are going to look at our text in three different ways. First, we're going to see knowing God's love. And second, seeing God's love. And third, expressing God's love. Again, knowing God's love, seeing God's love, and expressing God's love. I'm going to read our text, and then I am um, going to pray, and we're going to jump in. Beloved. Let us love one another, 
For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Oh, Holy Father, please be with me as I preach your word. May you open my eyes and open the ears and eyes of my brothers and sisters in here to see the glory that you've done for us on the cross and what that means for us in the church and outside of the church. God, give us attentive ears and focus today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our first point that we are going to be looking at is in verse 7. And eight, knowing God's love. You see here, John opens up with the word beloved. You see that word throughout this book. He says beloved, beloved brothers and sisters. He's coming in at a tone that's like putting your arm around somebody that's hurting. He's not scolding these Christians for doubting. Like, how dare you doubt? You are a Christian. You need to pick yourself up. No, he's coming next to them loved. We need to love one another. And why should we love one another? For love is from God. You see, in God's nature, he is love. And we so often forget that. And at least I forget that in my life, that God is love. And you see, why we forget that is because sin blinds our eyes to it. And that, and that is why we need the new birth. This is where Paul goes, I'm sorry, John goes in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, without the new birth, you can't see God's love and you cannot give God's love. We see this throughout all of Scripture. In one particular place, we see this in John 3. See, in John 3, there was a teacher by the name of Nicodemus, and he was recognizing that Jesus was something different. And he goes to Jesus late at night, so his friends probably couldn't see him, that he's going to Jesus, and said, Father, Jesus, I know that you are sent from God, you do marvelous things, and and he wants to learn more about Jesus, and Jesus stops him and says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because of our fallenness, because of our indwelling sin, because of the sin in the world, we are blinded to the beauty and the love 
of God. We see this throughout Scripture, a running theme of that when sin enters in, it causes division and strife, not only between us and God, but between each other. We see this with just the first set of siblings. Cain and Abel, could you imagine being Eve after sinning and then having these children and one day going out to the field and seeing one of your children, one of your child, dead on the ground because your, the other brother murdered him. You see this playing throughout the history of Israel with wars, rebellion against God and against other people. You see that in our own life and our history. You see it with the Romans. You see wars. You see it in Europe. You see it in Asia. You see it here. You can just look at the politics and see the tension, see the lies, see the deception and the corruption through both sides. And that is because of sin. And brothers and sisters, we as Christians cannot be a part of this. We cannot know God and hate our brothers and sisters. See, you cannot encounter the God of the universe and not be changed. I mean, it's like me going out into the summertime here in July and going out without sunscreen and not getting burnt, right? I, I, I'm very pale skinned. I am going to be burnt when I encounter the sun if I don't have sunscreen. And if you have encountered God in salvation, you will be changed. And what will you be changed by? You will be changed by God's love because God is love. Now, some of us, definitely of those who are of the Reformed nature, may feel a little weary with that term, God is love. Mainly because we see it um, misused day after day. God is love. And what I want you to first understand here is that what Paul is saying is God's not like some kind of um, essence of love in his, in his being, but God is love by his nature. It is by his nature he is love. I mean, it's like if you were to go to uh, the woods or go to the forest and see some baby cubs and in your stupidity play with those baby cubs, it's in the nature of the mother's, the baby's, um, the mother's baby to rip you apart. Is It's in God's nature to be loved, just like it's in um, a mama bear's nature to be protective. It is who God is. And you, at this point, you, be, you might be saying, okay, all right, we need to love each other. All right, we need a new birth to do this. God is love. But, you know, it's, it's kind of up in the air. It's ethereal. What, can you give me a concrete example of what God loves is? And that's where we go in our second point, seeing God's love. And this is in verse 9 and 10. Let me read them. In this, the love of God was made manifested among us, that God has sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
To give you an example of this, think of a small child, maybe your own child. And let's just say for the sake of the argument, this child is perfect. This child actually goes to bed. He does, she or he doesn't whine. She always obeys. And this child has never experienced evil. And in your love for other people, you send this child into the world. This child now rubs shoulders with evil, with pedophiles and liars and stealers and thieves and adulterers. This precious child that was unstained and could not see touched by sin is now being touched by sin. And that is what happened when Jesus came into this world. Jesus is sinless. He's holy. He's perfect. And when he came in this world, he came into a messed up, sinful world. And because he came into this world, and because of what he did on the cross, we can now live through him. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we have new eyes to see. And what does our new eyes see by faith? Oh, here it is. It's in verse 10. This is what our new eyes see by faith. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there is a lot packed into this one verse. And I want to start unpacking it first by saying that ultimately, when we're talking about love, it's not our love that is primary. No, it's God's love. One commentator put it this way. It is not our love that is primary, but God's free, uncaused, and spontaneous. And all our love is is but a reflection and of his response to it, and our response to it. And what is our love reflecting? What are we responding to? Read it again in verse 10. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's so much wrapped up into this. And if I, if I try to unpack it, we first have to understand the word propitiation. There has been much ink and blood spilt over this word. And it is the, at the core, the center of the gospel. If I can give you a simple definition of propitiation, what it means is simply putting oneself in the place of others to take on the punishment or wrath that that person deserved. Now the question is, whose wrath are we talking about here and whose punishment? Now before we can answer that, we first have to think about love. When we hear the word love in the culture today, if we listen to music, watch movies, just listen to people talk, See how people interact with each other. Love is a very uh, fluid word. And if I could boil it down, we could probably say most people, when they say, I love you or I want to be loved, they're basically saying love is just this emotional, ooey-gooey, um, oh, I feel so better, I'm so excited about this kind of thing. And it usually 
um, denigrates down to, well, if you love me, you won't judge me because if you judge me, you're stopping me from what I like to do. And that's not loving. But we can obviously see that is not what true love is. We see true love every day in our lives. We see true love when a mother only got four hours of sleep the night before, gets up at 2.30 at night to feed her child. We see love when somebody jumps out into a street and grabs somebody and pulls them away before they get run over by a bus. We see love when a soldier jumps out of his foxholes and crawls over and grabs his buddy and brings him back. We see love when a man lays down his, wa- his life for his wife. That is what true love is. You see, if, you, if somebody were to come to me and say, Clark, what's steak? And I drop back, oh, I'll tell you what steak is. Steak is when your mouth waters, your nose gets big, and you get excited and you can taste it in your mouth. That's what steak is. And you'll probably look at me as like, no, that's not what steak is. Steak is the most beautiful cut of meat that God's given to us. Perfectly done, medium rare, any other way is unchristian. That's what steak is. So you see, if you focus on just the emotional aspect of love, and yes, true love brings about emotion, but if you focus on that alone, it's fleeting and it's not really what love is. Love is laying down your life, doing something in the place of somebody else. You see, as that is what God's love is, but God is not merely loving. God is more complex than that. We see here in Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. You see, God is loving, but he's equally, equally just. And that is our problem. Because if God is equally, equally just, that means our sins deserve something. It deserves the wrath of God for our lying, for our thieving, for our neglecting of caring for others. We, I, I can't express it in words, but if we truly understood when we sin, what the cosmic reality was, is we would be devastated. We are rebelling against the sovereign, holy God of the universe. We are being like Cain, the evil one, when he killed his brother in pride and jealousy. So that means God's wrath is on our heads and God's wrath is on the world. But this... Oh, but this, beloved, this is what makes what Christ did on the cross so wonderful and so beautiful. In God's love, he sent his son into this world to be among us, 
to live to fulfill the law. And when he was put on the cross, he stood in the place of sinners. Therefore, the sins that you deserve, Christian, the sins that you commit day after day through your lives, no matter what they were, they were poured out on Christ and God's wrath was poured out on him. On the cross, sins were paid for. Jesus stepped in and they were forgiven. And Jesus said, it is finished. That means sin has no longer any power over us. And he rose again, showing that he conquered death. Therefore, we should not just merely settle for looking at this dreamy idea, oh, God's love, what does that mean? No, we need to sink our teeth into the meat of the gospel. And what is the meat of the gospel? The meat of the gospel is what Christ did on the cross, his propitiating, his atoning, his substitution, stepping into our place and taking God's wrath. That's the meat of the gospel. And that is what we need to look to We we are in doubt. But this is what happens. And this is what happens when we see Christ's love on the cross and what we did to us and for us. And this is our third point, expressing God's love. Since God showed us such great love by dying on the cross for our sins, we ought to love one another. Look here in verse 11. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God has died for us, it will compel us by nature to die for each other. Think about the parable in Matthew chapter um, 18, where Uh, There was a servant who owed his master a great debt, billions and billions of dollars. He could not repay it. And in the kindness and in the mercy of that master, he forgave that debt. And that servant was set free and that burden was lifted. And he went out into the world just smiling and happy. And then all of a sudden, he looks at and sees another servant. And you know what? That servant owes me $20. I'm there to get what's coming to me. So he grabs that servant, pulls him up. And this this servant's pretty big. Pulls him up and says, you give me my $20. Right after he was forgiven billions of dollars. Oh, brothers and sisters, how do we hold up each other by the scruff of our necks when we have been forgiven? When when we've been forgiven of our sins, why do we hold on to grudges? Why do we say, that person slanders me. You know what? I'm going to give them the silence treatment because they deserve it. Why do we do that? We are the children of God. We're not like this world. We are to be a people of forgiveness and love because at the core of love is forgiving. So when you see somebody in the church like, I don't like how they raise their children. I don't like how they criticize how I raise my children. I don't like the music here. I don't like how the ministry is going. You know what? I wish people were more godly like me who's going out and spreading the word. I'm so tired of all these lat Christians. Would they get their act together? No. 
If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. When somebody commits something wrong to us, it shouldn't, we shouldn't lash out or go away and not forgive them. It should be more like, you know what? You, you spoke against my back? You're forgiven. Or you slandered me? You're forgiven. You don't like what I'm doing? Well, you're forgiven. We're all forgiven. That is the core of what happens to us. We have a disposition change. We want to love each other. Jesus said himself in John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have loved one another, you see, the first point in our sermon is knowing God. We know God's love because he sent it. And we can see that on our second point. Jesus on the cross, that's the expression of God's love. And this is, comes to our head, this, like, this full circuit of God sending love and Jesus on the cross. And now us, see, love is being perfected in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, that, that word perfected in us, it, it kind of made me scratch my head. What does that really mean? I've read a lot of commentaries, I've thought and prayed about this. And what I, I believe this is talking about is that as we love each other, as we sacrifice for each other and forgive each other, what we are doing is displaying the very love that Jesus had on the cross for his people, and we are displaying it to the world. We're saying, you want to see what a glorious God is? Look what it's done to his people. We're forgiving. We love each other. That we were like an instrument in God's hands, and we're like a fire hose. You know, the church is a fire hose, and it's spewing forth what God's love is. And when we have these divisions of fights amongst us, that stops it. So what we need to do, brothers and sisters, is look at what Christ has did on the cross, and naturally, through prayer, through sanctification, no, we're not going to be perfect. We are going to love each other. And when you're in doubt and when you're in distress, look to Christ, what he did. And look how your life is changing. You once hated the church, but now you love it. And take courage in that. And as we come to the closing of this message, I, I think it is proper and right that I bring out an application um, you see, the, the love of God that we have for each other in this church and that reassures us in our faith cannot stay inside Crawford's walls. No, it has to go out. By nature, Christians are people that are loud and talk a lot. Not necessarily that everybody talks a lot, but our lives talk. Therefore, to do this, I want to first take a a quick step back into history. You see, Augusta is a great town with many um, good things, but 
the honest truth of Augusta, Georgia, is that we have a very, very dark past. Just less than two and a half miles away from the very spot that we sit, there was a slave market. African-American women and men and children were sold, sold into slavery, were beaten, treating less than a human being. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, where were the Christians then? Where were the Christians in Augusta then? Were they silent? Were they stood by and let a precious image bearer of God be beaten and sold into slavery? I know there was churches around that market. Why weren't the church people going out and preaching against it, trying to save the African-American people, trying to infiltrate the government so they remove the laws that were protecting this evil institution? Our very convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, has a horrible track record in this. And we now look back in the history and we're like, man, they messed up. We would have done so much better. We would have helped free slaves. We've been in preaching. We would have been bold. We've been in this. But let me ask you this. Maybe we would have done that back then. But what are we doing now? You see, the love of God should have compelled Christians back then to fight against slavery, but the love of God should compel us to fight abortion in this city. 150 years ago, it was legal and protected by law that you could own somebody and do whatever you want to them because of their race, because they were less than human. Now, in Augusta, Georgia, in Georgia, in the United States of America, it is legal and allowed to murder, to murder a child. Murder a child. We have not progressed at all. We have degressed. And where are we, church? This is not happening somewhere far away overseas. This is happening here. Dozens and dozens of children are being killed week after week. Where was the church back 150 years ago with slavery? Where's the church now with abortion? It is a holocaust within our midst. We cannot stand by and do nothing or stand by and just post stuff on Facebook and think it's going to change anything. Children are dying. Brothers and sisters, I've seen the pain and anguish on a woman's face when she walks out of the abortion mill after she's killed her child. And if you are here and you have killed your child, I want to let you know that the love of God that was spread, put on that cross and took your pain can take your pain away. Yes, you may still go through it, but there will be one day, oh, there will be one day where all of your pains are wiped away. 
All of your tears will be brushed away and Jesus will hold you in his arms eternally because you have been redeemed by God. And this you can take comfort in. And brothers and sisters, we can't stand by and let children die, let women's ruin their lives or murder their children or men and women do the same thing without preaching this word. Where are we, church? Where are the young men that's been gifted in the word, is gifted with apologetics, been gifted with witnessing? Where are we? Why are we not preaching day after day in the streets, trying to convince, trying to save lives? Where are the women? Where are the women that has been gifted by God with compassion and with hope and have the, the love of God shed into their hearts? Where's the women that can counsel and come alongside? Now, I am thankful, so very thankful, for the ministry of covenant care that this church supports. I'm thankful for the family, like Tom, the Thompsons, who opened their homes to foster children for a short time. And so that aborted children that were going to be aborted could be placed in family, Christian homes. That's a good thing. It's vital. That is the work of the church. That is the work that the gospel propels us to do. But here's the fact, the matter. There are more families in Augusta, Georgia, waiting and willing to adopt than there are children being saved. And we sit by and do nearly nothing. Oh, the love of God. The love of God compels us to do that. And I would encourage you to take a hard look. Take a hard look at what Jesus did on the cross. And when you are in doubt and in fear, remember what Jesus did on the cross. And when you constantly renew your mind in the God's word and seize this reality, may it go forth and push you to loving your brothers and sisters around here and loving the world. Let us pray. God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for your word, that you did not leave us stranded without your word, but we can see the truth that our hearts desire and that we need. God, take these words of mine. May they be honoring to you. May they bring you glory. May your church be edified and that we will know you more and glorify you more with our lives. And God, if there is somebody here today struggling with their salvation, remind them of what Christ did on the cross for sinners. They need not work for their salvation. No, Christ did that. Remind them of that, and may they see their changed lives, and they take courage in that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.